Well, at our university, about 70 cents on the dollar of what it takes to run the institution comes from non-state sources. You know, if you'd gone back 20 years ago, those numbers would have been reversed. So our, our nation has very quietly and without a lot of policy discussion, abdicated its responsibility of funding public higher education. Welcome to Innovating Together, a podcast produced by the University Innovation Alliance. This is the podcast for busy people in higher education who are looking for the best ideas, inspiration, and leaders to help you improve student success. I'm your host, Bridget Burns. You're about to watch another episode of Start the Week with Wisdom, which for those of you who are at home, if you have not seen this before, these are weekly episodes where we conduct an interview with a sitting college president or chancellor, and we want to talk to them about how they're navigating the challenge of this moment. We're in a really unique time and we want to focus on their leadership and unpack how they are making decisions, how they are navigating, and hopefully it will leave you with a sense of optimism, a bit inspired and give you a bit of hope. And I'm Doug Letterman, editor of Inside Higher Ed. This week, we're delighted to bring you a conversation with East Tennessee State University President Brian Nolan, who has a unique vantage point, having previously served as chancellor of the West Virginia Higher Education Policy Commission. Uh, Brian, welcome. Um, we uh, usually start off these, these discussions by asking how you're doing, and really as much personally as professionally. Uh, how are you holding up? Well, Doug and Bridget, thank you for the opportunity to be with you all today and for the opportunity to share a little bit about uh, the story here at East Tennessee State University. Uh, in terms of how I'm holding up and how the university's holding up, uh, optimistically well, you know, with the turn of the calendar year, a lot of the changes that are occurring around us, the potential for broad distribution of vaccine on the horizon, uh, really a, a sense and a feeling of optimism here on campus and a sense of optimism personally, looking forward to the things that hopefully will, will present themselves with summer and the return of uh, somewhat of a normal campus environment in the fall. That's great. I'm curious about, uh, so you have a very unique vantage point, having served as a chancellor of a system and a state and also now as a president. So that's a really unique perspective in that you understand kind of the broader holistic needs of the state. You've obviously done a ton with policy and advocacy, but then you also understand the granular inner workings of the day-to-day -day on a campus. So I'm just wondering about your perspective on how the pandemic has evolved, you as a leader, but other leaders as well, because you can see kind of that broader perspective? Well, I think one of the, the aspects of, of COVID that um, I don't think anything could have prepared you for is the intensity of the issue uh, and the recognition that decisions you make have implications above and beyond the level of decisions that you would have made in, in any other role. Uh, I can promise you that I, when I was a system chancellor, there was not any decision that we made that had the financial implications at the level of the decisions we've made on a daily basis with COVID. Uh, one of the things I've really en enjoyed the chance to watch is how systems have provided guidance to institutions on how to respond to COVID and how those institutions have performed vis-a-vis -vis those institutions that had a little bit more latitude and a little bit more flexibility. Now, I taught a graduate school uh, course this fall here at ETSU and I had us read this, and there's not anything in this book that prepared you for COVID. I'm sure that's right. Um, so it's interesting, does, as you um, 
you just described sort of the important role of systems and Tennessee has obviously been through some governance changes in the last couple of years that have you uh, less part of a system than you were before. Do, do you think that, how, how do you think, do you think things would have been different uh, or how has that played out for you? And, and when you talk about sort of the role of the system, what have you seen work well and, and be helpful during COVID and how does that affect where you are now? Just as a point of context, uh, Tennessee, three and a half years ago, uh, instituted governance change in which the universities that were part of a big, large statewide system that included community colleges, applied college of technology, and then places like ETSU all the way to the University of Memphis were under one board. Then Governor Haslam separated that system, putting a mission accent on the community colleges, and then allowing institutions such as ours to have our own boards. And in our case, the first time we've had local governance in the more than 100 year history of the university. So for us, you've got the process of bringing a board up and out of the ground, rewriting all of your policies from the parking policy to your tenure and promotion policy. And the board was literally just right at three years of age when COVID hit. We've not met in person with our board since February of last year. One of the things that I think for us has been a benefit is our board provided a great deal of operational latitude to myself and our administrative team to run and to set parameters for the operations of the campus. So we were able to make decisions with our faculty around things such as on-ground, online, hybrid. We were able to transition our residence halls to 50% occupancy, all singles in the interest of COVID safety. We're fortunate we've got a full comprehensive health sciences center here at College of Medicine. So we've been pretty aggressive on the threshold of social distancing, pushing things on, online. On our worst day, we had 50 students in quarantine, compare and contrast that to other institutions with a thousand. So local governance has worked for us. And it's been interesting to see systems with centralized governance making some decisions for broad systems that really had a lot of faculty pushback uh, that we didn't experience here. Mm -hmm. So I want to go back to the um, the your unique perspective and kind of perhaps pan out from uh, COVID. And I'm just curious about what surprised you about being a president of a campus that you perhaps would share with others because I, I do think there is a, a a frequent misunderstanding between the perspective of the system and the campus. And I'm just wondering how that played out for you. But one of the things that was a great honor uh, in a, my system role was to, to serve on the cabinet of then governor, now United States Senator Joe Manchin, and to really lead a lot of policy change, uh, to be seen as a, an advocate for innovation across the state. You know, we put in changes to our aid programs, our funding programs, really pushed on college access, and the ability to see big picture from small institutions with an enrollment of 1,200 to large institutions like West Virginia University with an enrollment of 30,000. Uh, but when I was chancellor, I, I spoke at the retirement dinner for one of our presidents, a gentleman named Dave Dunlap, and asked President Dunlap, you know, Dave, what are you going to enjoy about retirement? And he said, Brian, I'm looking forward to wearing jeans and the ability to have more than two beverages at dinner. And that really didn't stick with me until I moved into the seat. The public visibility the real role that you play in a community was not something that I was prepared for moving from the anonymity of a system to the, to the immediacy of a campus. Um, you know, it's impossible to go to the grocery store 
because everyone wants to see what's in your cart. Um, but that, that real sense that you are the face of a university and in a community such as ours, where we're the third largest employer in our region, um, that loss of, of kind of privacy was something that was a little bit of a shift that I don't think my family and I were prepared for. Yeah, I've heard that you actually, if you take the bow tie off, that Brian Nolan, there's a bow tie underneath. Is that true? <laughs> um, I have been accused of sleeping in it. Um, I have been accused of sleeping in it. So, Brian, actually, it's a, it's a really interesting question, especially in an era. I mean, we've seen um, presidents take heat for uh, not wearing a mask or getting caught in some. I mean, in addition to the loss of privacy, is it how much pressure do you feel as the face of a, of a community in a way that, again, you, you might not do unless you were a, a governor or a mayor or something? I mean, you are you are the head of your own little town slash community, not so little. But um, is there pressure? Is there also um, responsibility? Is there uh, opportunity, though, too? It, it's a humbling opportunity. You know, it's a, a real pleasure to be a part of a place that has such a significant impact on its community. You know, if you were to draw a 30-mile circle around my office, 80% of the people in that circle receive their baccalaureate degree from our university. 75% of all the healthcare practitioners in our region graduated from here. So it's an institution that really has had a transformative impact on this region. Uh, it's a region for my family that's home. My wife is from a small town about 30 miles away from here. All of her family who went to school went here. So the chance to be a part of something bigger than you is humbling. Um, you know, the, the recognition that um, when you step out of your home, you are the face of the institution is really in, in, in some respects a little overwhelming, um, but it's also extremely rewarding. And you see that reward at commencement when students who you had a chance to meet when you were on a recruiting visit in their high school have now five years later walked across the stage, got their degree. And I'm now in moving towards year 10. Many of them have now gone on to med school and are, are really successful in their careers. But the flip side of that, and I didn't realize that at a system level, is the budgetary implications of decision are more pronounced here. So if we were to have a reduction in force, layoffs, furloughs, um, there's a pretty decent chance that someone in your Sunday school class or on your child's Little League team is going to be impacted by that. So for regional universities, uh, their impact is above and beyond what happens just in the classroom, the research lab, or in the clinic. You really are a driving economic force for the community that you call home. You and I first met when you were speaking um, for the National Associates, for the National Center for uh higher education and public policy way, way, way back, like 100 years ago. With Pat Callen, it seems like just yesterday. Yeah, um, which the National Associates Program, for those at home, we wish we wish existed still. It was a way to kind of really groom future talent, especially and, and ex expose them to policy leaders and expertise in higher ed that really obviously was a great investment in you and myself and um, all kinds of other folks like Kim Hunter-Reed and Stella Flores and uh, Travis Rendell. So, um, but you and I became, uh, I, I, so I remember meeting you and you were just a, you were a very young chancellor. Like you were surprising, you were a whippersnapper for, a chancellor, right? Um, but you had a deep bench of policy expertise. And I'm wanting to draw upon that in that 
you now are really an expert, at, especially as we think about disadvantaged areas and regional publics, which we know is kind of somewhat the heartbeat of this country. And how I'm wondering if you have any thoughts about what do we need to do to protect, especially from a policy perspective, um, regional publics and areas in this country that have often been left behind? Because we've seen the consequence of that on January 6th, and we know that, that we need to probably do better in the future. Well, I think the challenges that are in front of us here in 2020 related to college access are as pronounced as they've ever been. Uh, with the economic downturn and what I think will be structural adjustments in our nation's economy, those families in rural communities such as ours, first-generation families, low-income families, really are in need of outreach in a way that maybe they haven't been in need of in a while. So from a policy perspective, I'm asking questions, how can we as a campus adjust our portfolio of aid, shifting from what has traditionally been merit to now need? And we put in place programs that allow students at certain income thresholds to attend our university at no cost. Really pushing hard on states to examine their portfolio of need versus merit aid and to double down on those need-based aid programs. You know, at the federal level, it's the purchasing power of Pell, Summer Pell, protecting against predatory institutions, the for-profits that prey on rural communities. But then I, I'm really struck by all the, the conversation right now on loan forgiveness. And as I think about first-generation students and low-income students, be they inner city or rural regions, the best way to look at the issue of loan debt is to ensure that it doesn't happen. So how can we double down on need-based aid for first-generation low-income students and then couple that with outreach programs like TRIO and GEAR UP and BRID programs that have been shown for decades to work. So at a campus level, how can we adjust our portfolio of programs to align with our mission? But then at the state, how can the state not forget the importance of need-based aid programs and outreach programs that will keep that pipeline moving? Uh, because in, in our area, we're seeing not only decreased numbers of high school students, but challenges to the college going rate. And for male students in our region, just a real absence of their participation in, in post-secondary ed, be it at the community college or at our university. That's a great quote. I'm stealing that. That's going to be our answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, it's going to be a relevant one because, you know, uh, here in D.C., uh, we're about to engage in a very deep conversation about loan forgiveness. And uh, we were actually just having a conversation internally this morning at Inside Higher Ed about uh, pros and cons of loan forgiveness versus doubling Pell or whatever the, you know, there, there are choices to be made. And um, uh, it's going to be a very interesting uh, policy discussion over the next few weeks. Well, and, and so, so much, if I could just for a second of the loan please. conversation is dominated um, by institutions on the high end or the for-profits. And what gets lost in the conversation is that for the workhorse of American higher education, the ASCU universities, half the students who graduate, graduate with no debt at all. And those who do graduate, for our institution, for example, the debt is less than 30,000 for that half who has some form of student loan debt. So the horror stories you see and hear are, are not the stories that exist a, a, across the predominance of our nation's public institutions. Right, and then when you throw in the other set of workhorse institutions, the community colleges that that you that are your yeah. uh, peers or, or allies and, in, in, and sort of uh, compatriots in, in the workhorse uh, realm, uh, that doubles that down, uh, doubles down on that same phenomenon. 
So, um, yeah, it's going to be it's going to be very interesting to see how those pressures cross here in D.C. Uh, speaking of um, as a um, as a regional public, you are uh, like a lot of regional institutions, very typically very tuition dependent. You just referred to it. Um, how, what are some of the, the things you are doing, the things you're trying that are different um, to try to combat those demographic and financial and other pressures that are uh, are pushing down on enrollment at a lot of places around the country? Well, at our university, about 70 cents on the dollar of what it takes to run the institution comes from non-state sources. You know, if you'd gone back 20 years ago, those numbers would have been reversed. So our, our nation has very quietly and without a lot of policy discussion, abdicated its responsibility of funding public higher education. The responsibility now rests on the shoulders of students. So we're working diligently to hold down costs. We did not increase fees last year. We've looked at administrative efficiencies. We cut our budgets across the board more than 5%. But we're looking at things that we might be able to do going back to a system perspective to partner with other universities you know, there's a real need in our area for engineers. Rather than starting a standalone engineering school, we partnered with a college in Middle Tennessee, Tennessee Tech, and have jointly badged an engineering program where courses are taught by our faculty and theirs. We've done likewise on the nursing side. So a dual degree signed by both presidents. It's a joint program. Uh, so we're looking at some innovations across systems to save resources. You know, COVID and online has really forced us to look at delivery mechanisms. Um, but ultimately, what we're looking at is how do we hold price constant, minimize cost, be as efficient as we possibly can, and then as we're investing in students through financial aid, really beginning to pivot some of those investments away from what was a traditional merit focus towards a much more need-based focus. I am so I want to shift to you as a leader for a bit. Um, cause you've been, like I said, when I first met you, you were, uh, really held up as an example. And I'm curious about as you have, you know, you've been a leader for quite some time in higher education. And I'm wondering if there are any books, movies, material, or if there was anything that was particularly inspiring, um, that's helping you as you've tried to lead through COVID. Well, I, I, I taught class in the fall and I held up the, the prop of how colleges work. I go back and reread that every fall when I teach class because it's a reminder of the importance of shared governance. It's a reminder of the importance of process. Uh, and it's also a nice focus on mission, but let's set the higher education stuff to the side. Um, my dissertation was on diversity and a book that I read as I was kind of moving through the close of that process was David Halberstam's The Children. And I read back and reread that over the summer, you know, the story of the Freedom Riders of James Lawson, Bevel, Diane Nash, John Lewis, kids who are college students, they were kids, 18, 19 years old, and the transformative impact that they had not only on their day, but on generations to come. Um, I was inspired by that as I was working on my dissertation, and I was inspired by it again this summer. Um, spent a, a lot of time going back and rereading Meacham's work. He spoke here last year in his book, The Soul of America, I spent a lot of time with, but then I'll admit, um, over the break, I read Promised Land by President Obama. It was it was as as fantastic as everyone says it is. But it, it can't all be um, high-level stuff. Um, during COVID, my son and I have watched the Avengers series from beginning to end. Uh, and occasionally, you need an, an escape from adulthood. So the Avengers with my son has, has been that escape. 
Love it. I'm a huge fan too. So that's good. So what's your favorite? Uh, I mean, the last one was pretty legit. I mean, whew, that storytelling and towards the last, especially the last two, right? Endgame. I don't know. It's, it's hard to top when they bring everybody together. There's something about that teamwork across all those, uh, you know, every type of superhero coming together, the convergence that, um, you know, that, that's, it's really in line with my theme of collaboration, right? And the importance of family. I, I agree. <laughs> do, do you think, do you think they're, uh, to, sorry to get, you know, serious for a minute, but, like, <laughs> but um, how does that that program with Tennessee Tech, I think, is is really interesting. And I'm interested in how you look. And again, you're now at a campus that's not in a system versus having been. But how do you look at cross institutional collaboration and, and what what's your sense after, again, your many years of leadership about why it has historically been so difficult? And do you think COVID and the sort of economic and other strains that many institutions are facing may enable it or, or, or clear the way for more cross-institutional collaboration than we've historically seen? Well, I'm, I'm somewhat fearful that it may actually push in the other direction out of competition for students. You know, as you look across states, particularly states in the Northeast, the demographic cliff is here. And as you're really pushing for students who are the lifeblood budgetarily of a campus, that competition kind of makes it difficult to collaborate. Uh, but where we've tried to push back against that is by not asking questions that relate to the campus, but by asking questions that relate to the region. So when I was a system chancellor in West Virginia, everywhere I went, I talked about a series of four numbers. Of every 100 ninth graders in that state when I was chancellor, how many graduated from high school? 73. Of those, how many went on to college? 39. Of those, how many graduated from college? 16. So that 100 ninth graders to 16 college graduates exists across institutions. So what we pushed on was P20 on collaboration, shared programs, shared services, because if the focus is on the student rather than on an institution, I think you're gonna get farther faster. So that's the approach we're trying to take here, partnering with our private schools, not to compete on programs, partnering with our community colleges around bridge programs, uh, guaranteed transfer, we've got reverse transfer in place, and then working with places like Tennessee Tech around joint degrees that allow you to serve students at a lower cost. It's hard work. One of the reasons why a lot of folks don't do it is because it's easier to, to, to row solo than with a team. Um, but we've, we've found that we get farther, faster by working together across institutions. Now it's broken down a little bit. Things aren't as rich as they were under the prior governance structure. Um, but a lot of the progress we've made is president to president commitments. I'm curious. So um, I want to refocus on leadership, especially um, as you're, you're talking about how framing is, has really helped you. Um, you know, we're hearing a lot of, especially in the fall, people were super burnt out at the end, right? And people really needed that holiday break. Um, and now I'm, I'm noticing one month back, people are also feeling like they're bottoming out. And perhaps it's because so much has happened in this country and it feels like we're watching, you know, we were watching a horror movie and then now it's an action movie. And it's just like, it's just a lot to process as a human being and to, to know that our students are processing it and try and show up every day and, and give your best. Um, so I'm wondering for you as a president, when you're coaching your team, when you're leading your team, 
What kinds of messages are you giving them right now that you find are helping them in this moment? One of the things that we're being intentional as we begin the spring in our action is to one, celebrate the accomplishments that we as a university realized in the last decade. We had planned on 2020 being a year of celebration, reflecting on the work of the campus, and COVID kind of took that away from us. So as we start 21, we're beginning with that reflection. Look at what we did. Look at what we were able to accomplish. Then we're spending a, a lot of time focused on our values. We had a university council meeting, which is kind of an internal shared governance board that met today. And I described the campus in a way that for me makes a lot of sense. Uh, we live in a community that uh, may not altogether be open to new ideas, to diversity, to inclusion, but our institution is different. In our community, we're fertile soil. We're a place where seeds are planted and where hope grows eternal. And on our darkest of days, I've been reminding myself and all of our faculty that there's something beautiful about hope and transformation that occurs in higher education. So how can we sow seeds of hope rather than division and really step forward together out of the shadows of COVID? You know, on a campus, one of the beautiful things that you have to do is the opportunity to interact with students. And all of us can close our eyes and think of the face and the story of a student that we came in contact with during their undergraduate or graduate experience. So really asking our faculty to think about students and how can we step forward to serve those students in a critical time of need. But I'm hopeful with what I'm seeing and hearing coming out of uh, our health sciences units with vaccines. I'm hopeful that the light at the end of the tunnel um, is truly a light and not a train, um, but we're trying to stay focused on hope and transformation. Well, I think that's the perfect way for us to end today. Um, thank you so much, President Nolan. It's been a delight to hear your perspective, especially coming from the unique vantage point that you do represent and thinking more about regional publics and parts of this country. We really need to be more creative as we think about solutions to support them in the future. So um, thanks, Doug. As always, thanks for wearing the uh, journalist tuxedo and also Brian, uh, you know, of course, dapper per usual. So um, we hope the rest of you, this has been useful for you and we look forward to seeing you next week. Thank you all. Have a great day. Be safe.